the New Testament section of the scriptures. Our text this evening is verses 9 through 11. But we begin our reading in verse 5. Looking at together the two pictures of Christ's humiliation and exaltation as we continue our study through the letter to the Philippians. Again, our text is going to be verses 9 through 11, focusing on Christ's exaltation. But uh, we begin our reading in verse 5. I hear God's word now, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With a sense this reading in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help this evening. Lord, our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you once again in the strong name of your Son, that you in your mercy and goodness would come to us and speak to us and proclaim to us and minister to us the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ unfolded in the scriptures, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts this evening afresh in the glory of your beloved Son, whom you have exalted. May he shine in our hearts as the bright morning star and pray that we would be changed into his likeness as we behold his glory. Lord, uh, exalt and honor him, we pray, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. Uh, The turning point that occurs in verse 9 at the beginning of our passage this evening contains one of the most important words in the New Testament. You may be wondering, what is an important theological word? It's simply the word Paul begins the passage with. He begins with a word, therefore. Uh, Paul is about to use it again, in fact, down in verse 12, when he exhorts believers to work out our salvation based on what God has done. That connective word, therefore, in Paul's letters, typically conveys the gospel logic. It shapes and styles our life rightly according to the gospel. What fuels our living is all on the basis of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Paul expounded in verses 5 through 8, Jesus' self-humbling, his self-emptying in becoming man, his taking the form of a servant and humbling himself in obedience all the way to the cursed death upon a tree. And that demands a response. It leads, as he says to his exaltation, therefore, verse 9 says, because of the work that he has accomplished as the servant of the Lord, because he's entered into the lowest depth of humiliation conceivable, therefore, God has highly exalted, but it's got actually nothing to do with our response to the gospel. Unlike on many occasions where we see that word linking the gospel truth to our gospel duty, verse 9 actually has nothing to do with our response to 
what Christ has done, but rather God's response to what his son has accomplished. It is the Father's response to what Christ has done because of what Jesus has done. That's the supreme gospel logic presented in this section. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him. The Greek literally says God has hyper-exalted him. That's the connection between what Christ has done for us and what God has done for Christ. Because Christ has hyper-humbled himself, so then God has super-exalted his servant. That's the logic we see in this passage. And it's the divine logic that is attested to in a number of different ways. You can think of it this way. It's a divine logic, if you will, that is necessitated by the word of God. This is something that God has already uh, prophesied in, uh, in his word. He has already prophesied this exaltation. Isaiah chapter 52, leading us into that sur- sur- uh, suffering servant song. That section begins with this simple declaration. Behold, the suffering servant, he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted the one at whom many will be astonished because his appearance was so marked beyond human semblance. His form would be beyond that of the children of mankind, the one who will be humbled. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall sprinkle the nations. When Jesus opened up the scriptures in his resurrection glory, when he appeared to the disciples who are puzzled on the Emmaus road, and you remember how starting with Moses and the Psalms and the writings, he spoke to his disciples concerning himself. Jesus simply told them, O foolish ones, slow of heart and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is a logic that's been necessitated, if you will, by what God has already spoken. And it is also logic that is promulgated in the kingdom of God. This is the logic that Jesus himself proclaimed concerning the kingdom of God, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a moral necessity that God has revealed in his kingdom. And this is a divine logic also that is uh, expression of what is at the very heart of God that is simply pleased God to exalt his son in whom he delights. It delights, it pleases the Lord to exalt the son whom he loves to reward such extraordinary self-humiliation of his beloved son with the highest conceivable exaltation that the heaven can afford. And this is the divine logic, if you will, That is simply an expression of the heart of God, what truly pleases and delights our God. Jesus himself, if you remember in John chapter 10, uh, in verse 17, For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. It's an astounding word that the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I take it up again. If you think of the hymn that we often sing devotionally, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Uh, Do you know that well-known refrain that we sing? If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. There's a sense in which that's the Father's expression toward his beloved Son. 
a picture the Heavenly Father looking upon the obedience of His beloved Son, looking upon the awesome humiliation culminating at the cross. And even as His face is turned away from His beloved Son at the cross, even as He forsakes His own Son, whom He had made to be sin, His heart, at the same time, in a sense, is bursting with admiration for His beloved Son. And it is as well we would put those words in the lips of the Heavenly Father, and say, my son, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Therefore, the father highly hyper-exalted his son. That's the logic presented in this passage. The logic that Christ must be exalted. And if you are in Jesus Christ, it's a thing that should make your heart burn within you. That's what truly makes your heart beat faster at the mere thought of it, that Christ is exalted. And this is the chief issue in Christian living, isn't it? This is what actually, what life boils down to, if you think about it. The question whether you truly agree with God's logic that Jesus, God's Son, should be thus exalted above all things and have preeminence in your life in this universe. When many in the church, as Paul mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, would rather look after their own affairs and interests and not after the affairs of Jesus Christ and not after the interests of Jesus Christ, Paul is here bringing the most sublime and loftiest theology into daily issues and problems, and he's seeking to unfold and apply the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us that everything in life is about theology. Everything in life is about your knowledge of God and your valuation of the Lord Jesus. But when we say God exalted his son, what does it actually mean? How does God exalt Jesus? What is the state of exaltation for the Lord Jesus? Our catechism, as with many other Reformed catechisms, helpfully identifies the four main stages of Jesus' exaltation. Resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of God and coming to judge the world. Jesus is exalted beginning at the resurrection. Being raised from the dead is a sign of Jesus being exalted. Raised by the power of God, that event by which Jesus was publicly declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, where Jesus publicly vindicated his own righteousness to demonstrate it, to have satisfied divine justice and to have vanquished death. Jesus was exalted by his resurrection. Then he's exalted also in his ascension, going into heaven in his body, triumphantly, visibly, gloriously into the highest heavens, as our catechism say, also to raise our affections heavenward and to prepare a place for us. Psalm 24 speaks of this reality when the psalmist cries out, lift up, your head, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The angelic host asks, who is this king of glory? And the answer antiphonally comes back and says, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And this is the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, entering triumphantly, gloriously into heaven. Jesus is exalted also in his sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. That is, he is sitting on the throne, the everlasting throne 
that controls all the affairs of this universe, that receives all the adoration and submission and obedience of the nations. By sitting at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus, again our catechism says, is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with fullness of joy, with glory, and with power over all things in heaven and earth. And from his exalted position, he gathers and defends his church, he subdues their enemies, and he pours out his gifts and graces upon his people. He intercedes for you. That is what it means for Jesus to be exalted as we sang in Psalm 110. He's the forever priest king. He is the forever reigning ruler who do all things for the good of his people. And we sometimes see shadows and glimpses of, the, of that advancement, of that exaltation uh, in the Old, Tes- Old Testament scriptures. Joseph being exalted or through what happens to Mordecai, the Jew, in the book of Esther, when he's a lowly civil servant in the Persian pagan court, when the king Ahasuerus asks the unsuspecting Haman, the enemy of the Jews, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? And Ahasuerus does exactly what Haman suggests, initially thinking that would be done to him, and we end up seeing that this lowly servant Mordecai is Uh, transfigured in a sense into honor and glory for half a day, given a public parade through the city square with a crown on his head, with royal robes on a horse, and how that anticipates the exaltation of Jesus, the God-man, the servant of the Lord. And he's seated currently on his throne, and he is exalted and will be exalted again in his coming as the judge to judge the living and the dead with all authority given to him to judge men and angels, nations and peoples. So these are four helpful stages for you to remember things that Christians across the globe confess every week. What do you believe? The Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection, raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and coming again to judge the living and the dead. And God has highly exalted his own beloved son. But if there are four stages, our passage tonight highlights four dimensions that are not necessarily sequential or separate, but four dimensions of the same reality. And I want you to just see that briefly this evening. Uh, Verse 9 mentions, first of all, that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. God has highly exalted Jesus. And this is a glorious reversal. God, in a sense, reverses and rewards uh, his uh, son's self-emptying with the highest place. Jesus is no longer in the poor, lowly stable, in the manger or no. He's not in the wilderness. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. But he is at the right hand of majesty on high. He is at the highest place in this universe in the presence of God the Father. But then secondly, we are told in verse 9 again that he is given the highest name in this universe. Again, this is a reversal. The one who took the form of a slave is now given the highest name, the name that is above every name. And what is that name? 
what is the superlative name in this universe? It can't be the name Jesus, because that's the name he already was given in his humiliation, the name Jesus. But the name bestowed upon Jesus, the man, is nothing less than the name of God itself, the Lord, Yahweh, the Old Testament. Whenever you see the capital letters, Lord, the divine name, the covenant God, and that's the name by which Jesus is to be known and confessed. So going back to Psalm 24, when the angels ask, who is this king of glory ascending into heaven? The angels all cried out, maybe with a, a hymn writer. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And Jesus is bestowed the highest name in this universe and revealed to be the God-man to whom all glory and honor belong. Now, in citing and attributing the name of God to Jesus, Paul is actually thinking of the Old Testament passage. He's quoting exactly from Isaiah chapter 45, where the Lord says, I am the Lord and there is none other. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For by myself I have sworn a word I have spoken and that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul is attributing that divine uh, description to the Lord Jesus. So that shows what really is happening here. When Jesus is exalted, he's revealed to man and angel to be the God and the Lord, the man who is truly God, worthy of glory and honor. But then the third dimension you see is that not only Jesus is now in the highest place and uh, endowed with the highest name, but thirdly, uh, he is on the receiving end of universal submission. And that replaces his obedience unto death. When Jesus obeyed unto death and humbled himself even to the lowest depth of humiliation, now, as a result, God has exalted him with the universal submission of heaven and on earth and things under the earth that every knee should bow before him and every tongue should confess his godness, his lordship, his glory, that a one who used to be spat upon and despised and beaten should now be revered and every knee should bow before him. Paul says that no one can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens when a heart has changed. Your eyes are opened. You see Jesus as who he truly is and human tongues changed by grace begin to confess that Jesus is Lord. But that will be also true of his enemies. One day, every tongue, whether willingly or unwillingly, will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord when he returns in glory. Every knee will bow before him. And by grace, 
believers are beginning to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus. But whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee belongs to Jesus. Every knee will bow before him, whether in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Even men and angels who will be cast into judgment will bow before the Lord Jesus. We saw that reality uh, foreshadowed in our morning passage this morning. The Davidic king, who is to be the root of Jesse, the stem of Jesse, who will hold in his right hand the scepter with which to rule the nations. One day, he will rule with that scepter as the scepter of righteousness in judgment to break the kneecaps of all those who are his enemies. But even now, he's ruling with a scepter of his grace to bow, uh, to cause sinners to bow before him in thankfulness. And that's part of his exaltation. And then fourthly and finally, I want you to see how Jesus is also endowed with the highest blessing given to men in place of the cursed death he's endured. God the Father reversed the curse, the death on the cross, with the highest blessing available to a man. And what is that blessing? What is the greatest blessing you can have as a man? What is the enjoyment of the glory of God, isn't it? Verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, exaltation of the Lord Jesus will be unto the glory of God. God is so married together the exaltation of his son and the glory of himself that in a sense Jesus will be that shorter catechism question one man that Jesus will forever glorify him God and enjoy him forever it's just like Psalm 1 when we think about the righteous man the blessed man planted by the streams of water always bearing fruit that is to be true of every believer in Christ, but that's supremely true of the righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, I wonder if you ever thought about short of catechism in relationship to the Lord Jesus, the true man, that in his exaltation, he will glorify God and to enjoy him forever in place of his cursed death upon the tree. God will grant unto Jesus the highest blessing of the glory of God and the enjoyment of him. So that's the uh, picture, a composite picture of what it means for Jesus to be exalted by God the Father. Glory and honor bestowed upon the Son. Authority and power granted to him. He is to be the heir of all things. Nations will be his heritage. That's a glorious universal dimension to his exaltation. And the only logical thing, only sensible response to that is that our knees should be bowed and our tongues bless him as our God and King and Lord and our knees should be bowed and our tongue should kiss the Son and come to him and confess with our lips that name that is above every name that we swear allegiance to him. And whenever that occurs, you see a sign of the kingdom of grace that God's saving grace has enabled you to do that. It's a sign that he's exalted. It's a sign that he is reigning. It's a sign that he is endowed with all power. 
just as in the days of Elijah, there were those whose knees have not bowed to Baal. So God has reserved all those whom he has set free from bondage to Satan and sin so that they have come to Jesus willingly and bowed their knees to him. If you think about it, lame people cannot bow their knees. But it is as though God's grace has healed our lameness. That with healthy legs, we have begun to bow before the Lord Jesus. And your heart is delighting to honor and glorify him. Uh, one of the clearest signs you see of the Lord's exaltation uh, is the gathering of the church. People believing the exalted one's promise that he actually comes to you every Lord's Day. You do realize that every week that happens, that Jesus is with you and Jesus comes to you because he has spoken. That will be the case. And when the church gathers, the exalted one comes and meets with his people. The world never understands that dynamic. Many professing believers don't even care about that. Think of gathering of the church as a drudgery. You have to come to evening again, some kind of cruel punishment but actually sign that Jesus has been highly exalted and working and reigning is going to be seen in the gathering of human hearts, willingly offering themselves to submit to the Lord Jesus and glorify him and praise him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That's the sign of the kingdom of grace to be given unto him because in the kingdom of glory, it will be the entire wide world that will do that. All knees bow to him, all tongue confess the Lord of uh, glory, the Lord Jesus, and it will all redound to the glory of God the Father. So that's the exaltation of Jesus Paul sets forth. And Paul is applying that and says to the church, therefore, do nothing Verse 2 of chapter 2, out of selfish ambition. Or verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Have this mind among you. Jesus is exalted. Do you agree with the logic that Christ is exalted? Apply this to your nitty-gritty daily life on earth, in the church. Have this mind among you. Clothe yourself with the humility of Christ, knowing that those who humble themselves will together with the Lord Jesus exalted. Oh, glorious theology, and may that impact the way we live for God's glory. Well, let's pray together.